0: to um, the intimations of which I hope we'll finish today <laughs> sly smile oh I have to get you your paperback I keep forgetting to send it back to you I mean if you want it um, alright so um, how are we finding the prelude you're liking it Harry Potter vibe are other people liking it yeah.
1: where are we
0: supposed to be now? Um, <laughs> and to book six
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right. So where we were was um, looking at the child who is um, pretending to be an adult, is doing all these adult-like things or enjoying it, but it's all games. It's all play. Um, So uh, it's all some fragment from his dream of human life shaped by himself with newly learned art. Does everyone have that? If you have the Norton, it's page 436.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, we, we recollect that that child is Little Hartley Coleridge. It, it's not, it's, that's a factoid. It's not um, for the, you don't need to know it for the poem. But it probably matters that it's not the speaker's child. In other words, I think you could get that without knowing um, that in fact biographically it's Coleridge's child. But even if you didn't know that, you um, can tell that when he talks about light on him, light upon him from his father's eyes, that he's not the father. So behold a child among his newborn blisses, a four years darling of a pygmy size, just going over it again. See where mid-work or six years darling you might have, see where mid work of his own handy lies, fretted by sallies of his mother's kisses with light upon him from his father's eyes. See at his feet some little plan or chart, some fragment from his dream of human life, shaped by himself with newly learned art, a wedding or a festival, a mourning or a funeral. So again, you could think back to the um, festival that... The, that Wordsworth himself is thinking about in stanza four. That is, um, that, uh, starting at line 36, ye blessed creatures, I have heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. My heart is at your festival, my head hath its coronal. So now he's talking about the wedding or the festival that the child is play-acting. What relation does that festival have to the festival in um, stanza four? My heart is at your festival, that
1: one?
0: Yeah. So my heart is at your festival, and now the child is play-acting weddings and festivals. So remember this comes after earth fills her lap with pleasures of her own. This is just a way of getting the difference between his view of the world in the first four stanzas, not his view of his view of the world, but his view of what the world is in the first four stanzas versus his view of the world starting in stanza five. So his view of, the world, of what the world is in the first four stanzas is basically, the world is all there is. And there was a time when it was great, but now it isn't. However, that is all that there is. There's nothing besides the world. Whereas in stanza five, we begin the platonic version of the poem, which is the world is the first place that we go to after we leave the true reality of the place of forms or of heaven or of God, God who is our home. So we go from God who is our home now to the world being um, something which is not all there is but which is a substitute for what we've lost when we've lost our home in platonic heaven. So one way that you can see that change, which is is crucial to what he's trying to do in the poem. Remember, it's a poem that is trying to get him out of a terrible gulf of despair, a terrible gulf of nihilism and hopelessness. So what he's trying to do in the poem then is to imagine, first of all, that this world is not the only world that there is. Because if this is it, if this world is the only world that there is, then there isn't very much. That's what he's discovered in the first four stanzas. There's a tree of many, one, a single field that I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone, and it's gone. And the way they speak of something that is gone is that they no longer speak of it as being there. What's gone is the way he used to see them. So they're not speaking of a world elsewhere. They're speaking of the end of an interest in the only world that there is. And that's why he stops after four stanzas. But when he picks up again, he's imagining a different Archimedean reference point which is another world, the Platonic world. Yeah?
1: So it's the more romantic idea, though, to think of this world as being the only world, yeah. and where, where the true you know, meaning lies. Mm-hmm. So this transition is away from, from everyone else.
0: Well, OK, so, th- so what do you mean by the more romantic idea?
1: The idea that we, we seem to be interested in when studying romantic poets and categorizing them which like, is like Blake felt here was we all we only have one life. There's no life after death. It's yeah, religious. There's you have to live for now. You have right. to be in the present, mm-hmm. which I think still resonates with people today.
0: Yeah, and I think ultimately that's what this poem is going to say as well. But it's using a as Wordsworth himself said to Isabel Fenwick, he's using a kind of of structure to place himself with respect to this world, which is not ultimately going to imagine another world except temporarily. So it's the obvious comparison to make is electrical engineering, where you have to talk about, I mean, clearly, as everyone knows. I actually got fooled by the obvious. (laughs) You got fooled by the word obvious there, yeah. in electrical engineering, you have to talk about imaginary quantities of things in order to work out how, um, how currents and electromagnetic fields and so on are gonna work. And they're imaginary, they're not real, but you still need them in order to figure out what, um, how, how circuits are gonna work. And so in the same way, he is using a structure which in a sense is imaginary. There's, there's nothing in reality That this corresponds to, but it allows him to get to a place where he can describe the result the way he's going to describe the result. So. Oh, I
1: know what you're saying. All right. Yeah, I mean, kind of in chem, kind of sometimes we kind of invent imaginary middle equations to help us get to the final. Resolve. Right, yes, exactly. That, and the imaginary middle equation is something that would never actually occur in real life, but you use it to help you calculate. There's also he's using, he, this is like a hypothetical scenario that's kind of helping him improve. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So it's, it's something that you don't have to find in reality, but it gets you from one thing that you do find in reality to another thing that you do find in reality. And that's how he's digging himself out of the problem. And that's what he explicitly said. To Fenwick, who to whom he was explaining the poem. This is much later, so you don't have to take his explanation at face value because he didn't understand his earlier self very well by that time. But nevertheless, um, it, it's something to know. And the thing to know there then is that he specifically denied a belief in Platonic in a Platonic view that he himself did not hold that belief. He certainly wouldn't have held it later on in his life when he was a fairly orthodox Christian, but, and where, where platonic belief has no relation, or has some relation, but no, no um, relation in this way to orthodox Christianity. But he also says that even when he was younger, He didn't hold that belief, but it was a way. It was a structure that could get him going. Yeah.
2: I just have this one idea that I can't stop thinking about. Um, Well, when I was catching up with um, with this weekend about what guys did, Mm -hmm. and he told me about the crag.
0: Mm Mhm. Yeah.
2: And the swimmer, and I think it's such a cool image. Mhm. And now I guess all of this has got me thinking about it's like how there is so much you discover in ourselves mm-hmm. it's almost like we are like caves and carvings. yeah like within ourselves yeah. yeah and we don't know yeah and so it really seems like well at least yeah in reading this it's like even in revisiting these memories mmhmm it's kind of seeing them differently
0: yes exactly
2: yeah so yeah, I just, it's just an idea that I've been getting a lot, like, self-exploring. Because it freaks me out because, well, I thought there's, like, this is all there is. Like, I'm just a fire, like, what else is there? Mm-hmm. But then it got me kind of, like, scared
0: when I was like, oh my god, what if there are, like, deeper crags in me? Yeah. The... yeah. Yeah, well, so remember that that's what he's saying in Home at Grasmere also. That is that Jehovah and his angel and his hosts I pass him unalarmed um, because there's nothing there which compares to um, the depths and dizzying gulfs that we find when we look into our hearts, into the heart of man, Um, chief chief, um, uh, deep motive and chief subject of my song. And um, there's an amazing passage it will get to later it's the Winander Boy passage and um, it's in um, I think it's in book 10 or 11 of the prelude I can't remember right now but there he has a phrase where he talks about how the, sometimes he would hear echoes and um, the sound would carry in the phrases far into his heart. And Thomas De Quincey, who I mentioned before, who wrote Confessions of the English Opiometer and was, um, wrote The Recollections of the Lakes and the Lake Poets um, and was, um, had lots of really interesting things to say, both personally and um, literarily, about the work of Wordsworth and Coleridge, thought that that phrase, far into his heart, was absolute genius and absolutely typical Wordsworth that no one but Wordsworth would have a phrase like that that the idea that somehow the heart could be this place of farness of distance of, of a perspective that goes on and on and on and so you're absolutely right that's that's exactly how to think of this so like is it
2: could that be like what Romance was talking about like the idea of like romanticism yeah where you have instead of outwardness, the complexity of the outside, we look to the complexity of the things that are inside and the things that we thought were simple.
0: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, well, that's what we're going to see happening, and that's what, really, that's what the prelude is about, or Tintern Abbey, or Nutting. Over and over, his autobiographical poems take the form of, I used to be Tight with nature like this and now I'm not and at first that felt like a loss in fact it is a loss, it's a terrible loss that was a time when everything was simple and present and now what I find is that in fact things are far away and absent and that produces in me, a search within myself, and therefore produces the opening of depths that I had no need to know about when I was tight with nature, and that's the intimation. So it is the great example of of that poem, but Tintern Abbey is very close to it as well, and he's over and over again. So he'll say um, things are not. Uh, Things well. Take a look at the end of *Tintern Abbey*. So one of the surprises in *Tintern Abbey*. What uh, will is it on? Um. It's going like 89 ninety. No, yeah, Eighty-seven. Yeah, it's if you. It's sixty-five. Oh, sixty-five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> That's what you meant. Yeah. good. Right. Why do computer scientists celebrate Christmas on Halloween? Just
1: binary, I'm guessing, but I didn't
0: do the math. Sorry? Something to do with binary, I'm sure. Uh, almost. Um, because oct 31 equals dec 25.
2: Oh,
0: cool. <laughs> Are you not getting it? And you call yourself a writer. Really? Um, yeah?
2: No, I got it.
0: Oh, you did? I think so. Base 8. Base 8, 31. 30, 3 1 in base 8 is 2 5 in base 10. So oct is base 8 and dec is base 10. Oh. So oct 31, octal. 30, 3 1 in octal is 2 5 in decimal. Oh. Okay, it's a... Don't don't tell too many friends if they're drunk because they'll just won't stop laughing and they might die, it's so funny. Really? No. <laughs> no, not really. Wait, I get thrown at me. Well, it depends on
1: the people I tell. it's my teammates, I would get these thrown at me. what would happen?
0: Um. So, Yeah. If you let, let's start at line eighty-four of *Tintern Abbey*. So that's page sixty-eight. He's talking about how, you know what? Let's just, nah. All right. Um, he talks about the coarser pleasures. This is line seventy-four of my boyish days, and their glad animal movements were are all gone by. And when that, even then, though nature was to me was all in all. So, do you see that? Nature, um, to me, was all in all. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, he doesn't, Helmi doesn't cite Paradise Lost there, but that is Adam's um, mistake is to treat Eve as all in all, and um, God in Paradise Lost says that in the future he will become all in all. What is all in all? That um, that's all you need. It's, you know, we use it as as an idiom. All in all, it wasn't too bad. Mm -hmm. But what it actually means is the self-coincidence of everything with itself. And if God is all in all or nature is all in all, then it is all that there is and completely fills all that there is. So it's allness within itself. So there's no room for anything else. Uh-huh. There's no, dis, no self-discrepancy within nature.
1: But Eve is more than all?
0: <laughs> well, that's how Adam treats her. But, the, but, what, but I think the, the key words he's thinking of in Paradise Lost is um, God predicts a future or asserts a future when he will be all in all. That is, there'll be no hell, there'll be no... Um, hell will be sealed off, there'll be no other minds, but everything will be God. So Wordsworth is doing something he does over and over again, which is to go to Paradise Lost religious terminology and turn it into terminology about nature. So I don't know if you guys had a footnote on this or noticed it, but um, when Wordsworth passes, Simplon Pass, The Gorge of Gondo in book six of The Prelude, maybe we'll get to that later today. Um... He hears um, the characters of, or he sees the characters of a great apocalypse, and then the line is, a first and last and midst and without end. So do you remember that line? Um, it, looked, it looked like the, the waterfalls around him and the gorge and the stones and everything in this tremendous pass that he's passing through as he is crossing the Alps, he said it all seemed like the characters of a great apocalypse, that is a revelation, a religious revelation. An apocalypse literally means, do people know that it literally means revelation? It's the Greek um, like Apollo, which is a vision? No, it's, it's, um, it's calypso, like a eucalyptus. Anyone know what a eucalyptus tree looks like? Yeah. Lots of leaves? Mm -hmm. It literally means well-covered. So, Calypse in that word apocalypse or eucalyptus means a covering. And apocalypse is a lifting off of the covering, lifting off what is covered or a revelation. So apocalypse doesn't mean you know, that the world explodes. The apocalypse of, of St. John the Divine is a revelation of what will happen he is telling us something that we don't know, namely that the world will explode and burn, but that's not what the meaning of, uh, sorry? That's not the point,
1: though. That's not the point.
0: Yeah, the point is the apocalypse of the truth, the revelation of the truth. So Wordsworth, when he sees the characters of a great apocalypse, thinks he's seeing the ultimate truth, and it is a first and last and midst and without end That is almost a direct quotation from Paradise Lost, where God is described. He is sung by the angels, him first, him last, him midst, and without end. So God is everywhere. He's first, he's last, he's midst, and without end. But for Wordsworth, no. It's that nature looks like it is telling the story of what came first and what comes last and what's in the midst and what is without end so what is god-like in Paradise Lost becomes world-like in Milton and the world I mean, sorry in Wordsworth and the world-likeness of that turns out to be pretty different it's not that for Wordsworth the world is substituting for God it isn't What's happening for Wordsworth is that the world, everything that God promises is not a promise God can keep. And the only way to transform or transfer this promise to the world is to make it a promise for human apprehension rather than for absolute presence. So God shall be all in all. That's absolute presence of God. In Tintern Abbey, nature was all in all. So it's past tense that we get from, for nature then to me was all in all. And so we have past tense, then, was, and then to me all in all, rather than God shall be, future tense, and no, to me, or to anyone, simply put, God shall be all in all, pure and simple, in Paradise Lost. So if you can feel that difference, that, that's a short summary of the difference that you will find over and over again between Wordsworth and Milton. And again, another one is Jehovah and his, and his hosts, I pass them on alarmed, because we're, because we're looking to the heart of man chief haunt um, and region of my song and that relation to nature and then relation to the human heart which is at first feels fulfilled in nature and then doesn't that's what Wordsworth is describing so he goes on I cannot paint what then I was so what I was then I can't even describe now The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. So remember, here's the cataracts from the steep in the Intimations Ode. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling, and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied or any interest unborrowed from the eye. So again, think of that, Tafara. that back then, I didn't need to think about what I saw. I didn't need, there was no interest unborrowed from the eye, which is what you mean by the external world. All that I could see was, all, was enough. That was all that I needed, was, it was what I could see. Then, he, then, dash, that time is past, he says. And all its aching joys are now no more and all its dizzy raptures. So, kind of sucks to be Wordsworth. That is, but that's because it sucks to be a human being, because that time, by the time you're an adult, you no longer have that freshness in the world. But he then goes on, not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur, other gifts have followed for such loss. So hang on to that not for this, which we'll get back to in, or in the intimation zone in a minute. But I'm not murmuring, that is not complaining. To murmur means to express resentment under your breath. So, so we would say muttering. But murmur then now, well, you can have soft inland murmur also, but here he means murmuring against fate. Not for this faint eye, nor more, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. So I'd like to believe that I've had abundant recompense for that loss. How? For I have learned to look on nature, not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still, sad music of humanity, not harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And so, so the recompense for the loss is that I can now understand tragedy or sadness or um, minor keys where before nature was all for me a major key. But now I have an understanding of the minor keys, the still sad music of humanity. Not harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. Um, Does he have a note on harsh and grating? He doesn't. That's also from Milton. Um, It's Il Penseroso in the pair of poems that we talked about a little bit. Oh, no, it was a different class we talked about. It. Sorry. Uh, L'Allegro and Il Penseroso are two early poems of Milton where L'Allegro is the, um, the cheerful or happy person, the one filled with exuberance or gaiety, alegresse um, in French, and Il Penseroso is the pensive person, the one who is always thoughtful and brooding. And the pensive person, says that is also in favor of a music that is not harsh or grating. So, and he goes on, and I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts. So, again, he's going from not needing a remoter charm by thought supplied to a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts. So he's left the present outside, the presence of the world outside of him, and instead he is feeling the elevation of thought, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man. A motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. So that's Tintern Abbey. And it's, again, the first relation to nature Here in Tintern Abbey, he actually gives you three. There's when you're a little kid and you're not even thinking about how great nature is, you're just playing with your ball, to looking at nature as a young environmentalist. The kind of people who are now rightly pushing so hard on global warming. You know, all the 15-year-olds and and the, the demonstrations that they're starting and the demand for environmental justice. And... It's particularly something that really strikes you when you stop seeing the world as simply a playground and see it as amazing, and that strikes you at a certain time in adolescence. And that is what he's describing. That's when nature becomes all in all to him. But now, older still, he is feeling sadness about the world. It's not, oh, nature is beautiful, that's all that matters. And here he's praising the very fact that he can feel that sadness. So in the Intimations Ode, that's going from the festival of May Day when everyone is dancing and singing and um, my heart is at your festival, my head hath its coronal, I, um, I see, I see it all. Um, the fullness of your bliss I feel that is getting back to a celebration of nature but it doesn't last and then there's that inwardness that takes the form of recollection recollection of early childhood but recollection is the key word and that inwardness which is something other than nature is to be celebrated in every way because even nature isn't doing it for him. So he then therefore goes from thinking of a wedding or a festival as being the height of human experience, you could say, to it being a game. Because, and that's what the, what the two festivals are. For the child, it's a fragment of his dream of human life. It's not that you can have a real festival on Earth, which is pure and absolute, because this is just the foster mother doing all she can to try to entertain you while you are under her care, while you are an inmate of Earth. I actually looked up inmate in the OED, and, in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, you weren't here, but what do you think of the word inmate as meaning? If you just saw it, how would you define it? <coughs> inmate? Yeah.
2: Like, well, it has, like, if jail's like an
0: in. Mm-hmm. Inmate. So you see it as a prisoner. Yeah. You see the word meaning prisoner. Yeah, I spoke to a friend of mine in England who does also. That's a very modern meaning of the word. So it only was first used, according to the OED, to mean prisoner in the late 19th century. And what it generally means is a person who um, lives with you in the same house or building or cottage or dorm or something else that you do. So it's a euphemism or poetic word for being um, held against your will, (laughs) but that's not what it originally means. And in fact, Coleridge in Frost at Midnight talks about He's awake, we'll, we'll look at this poem later, but he's awake with his, I mentioned this on, on last Wednesday, awake with his young child. His, um, that's also Hartley Coleridge, the six year darling here. His child is, it's midnight, everyone is asleep, and his child is in the cradle next to him as he's writing the poem, and he talks about the inmates of my house are all asleep. So that means the other people who live in the same house that he does, in this case, he's talking explicitly about the rest of his family. So the little actor is conning the parts, learning the parts of celebrating this world. However, that's wrong. And then in the next stanza, he addresses the little child, thou whose exterior semblance doth belie thy soul's Immensity. So you're so little, but here again, Tavar, this is exactly what you're talking about. You're so little, but your soul is immense. The smallness of your body belies the immensity of your soul. Your soul is much more immense than mine, he's saying, because you are so close to the origin of things. So thou whose exterior semblance Doth belie thy soul's immensity Thou best philosopher Who yet dost keep thy heritage So the little child The four or six year old child Is the best philosopher Who yet dost keep thy heritage How does he keep his heritage? Wait, He's so close
1: to, to heaven
0: yeah, he's, he's still, he still has he still has vision of the soul that rises with him, his life's star. That's right. why his soul is so immense. He can still see it. Thou, I among the blind. So who are the blind? Adults, Adults me, <clears throat> and the child is an I among the blind. And then a strange moment that deaf. And silent, reads the eternal deep, <coughs> haunted forever by the eternal mind. So, who or what is deaf and silent? It's still
1: the, child,
0: right? the child, or maybe the the eye of the child. Yeah. The the child made all I yeah
2: yeah like, even like the I child it makes me think of Freud Go and on. the ego uh huh so now I'm trying to not be disillusioned by the brilliance of this because well, Freud is like children are the way they are because their ego is like the only thing that's like running like, Right. no they're it it is the most egoistical okay. one, basically. It right? is the yeah. most selfish. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that element of, of
0: selfishness. Yeah, that's not what he's seeing here. So what he's seeing is the eye among the blind is because the child is so great a philosopher, because it sees the truth, because um, we are all distracted by what's going on in this world, and um, uh, we are therefore losing touch with the world of pre-existence. So that's why heaven the, the, I think you were here for what we to that sense, but heaven lies about us in our in our infancy. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds a light and whence it flows, he sees it in its joy. so. <clears throat> this child is either still an infant, depending on how French your view of the word infant is, um, or at least a growing boy. Uh, he's someone who is still in touch with reality. And that's why he's the best philosopher. We are blind. We oldsters are the ones who are no longer see celestial light anymore. There was a time when we did, but now we don't, but this little child does see it. And I think you know it's very strange, and this is where the poem starts getting very strange, to say that the chi- that the child or that the eye is deaf and silent, which looks like a handicap of some sort distraction. But there exactly that there's no noise, there's no busyness of the world to distract him. So as an eye among the blind, he's undistracted. That deaf and silent reads the eternal deep, and notice it reads, not sees the eternal deep, but readest. It reads the eternal deep. Don't. Underplay the word read there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's like he understands, not just sees it.
0: He understands, doesn't just see it. Good, exactly. And what were you going to say, more, Max?
1: Um, I was. I wasn't going to go as far as far as understand because you can read something and not understand it. But it's, <laughs> yeah. definitely, it's definitely more than than just pure visual input.
0: Right. You have to be making an effort. Well, it's 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 reading is to seeing, what. Thinking is to sensing you could say that if you're reading then you're in the realm of thought whereas if you're seeing you're in the realm of sensation it's again a distinction an interesting distinction from Milton where he defines tragedy as the seeing or reading of a single action um, which when you see it or read it um, produces catharsis And Milton says this in the preface to his tragedy, Samson um, Agonistes, where he specifically says this tragedy wasn't meant to be acted but only to be read. So the question, what you do... One of the things, one of the hilarious things that some of uh, Wordsworth's friends are writing about at this time, especially Charles Lamb who was a close friend of Wordsworth and Coleridge, and also Hazlitt, they're writing essays that have titles like On the Fitness of Shakespeare for Dramatic Presentation. And the basic argument is you should never, ever, ever put Shakespeare on stage because it only ruins it. Shakespeare is... You can only get a sense of what Shakespeare is doing if you read Shakespeare. If you watch a performance of Shakespeare... It's just going to be um, a a trivializing of what Shakespeare is really doing. So this is not current thinking on the whole, but it's certainly worth considering. And the idea there is that you just don't have, if you just go to Shakespeare play, you're having an experience, but you're not thinking the way you do when you read Shakespeare. So the idea of reading here is a really demanding one. And it means not just being the passive object of sensation, but it means thinking about what you are looking at, words or the eternal deep. And the eternal deep is haunted forever by the eternal mind. So he goes on addressing the child, mighty prophet, seer, blessed, on whom those truths do rest which we are toiling all our lives to find. So it's you who know the truths that we spend the rest of our lives trying to find. He goes on, in, he added a line which isn't in the Norton. In darkness lost the Darkness of the grave. Do you have that? Yes, I have that. Yeah, and you have that? In, in darkness lost, the darkness of the grave. So that's where we are. Thou, he keeps addressing the child, over whom thy immortality broods like the day. So your immortality is brooding over you. Again, a really strange image. So brooding figuratively means thinking about in a kind of deep and somewhat um, anxious way. You might brood over what that person you like said to you, and that doesn't (laughs) mean that you're having nice thoughts about it. Oh, I'm brooding about how much... They love me. It's more like, I'm brooding about what that could have meant when they said, um, I'm not sure. So no. <laughs> we've all brooded about that. <laughs> uh, literally, what does brooding mean? We talked about this at the beginning of Paradise Lost.
2: Brooding? I just think of like, the Bible verse where Jesus said, like, you brood of vipers.
0: Breed of vipers. Is this breed? Yeah. But it is, no. But it's the same word, actually. Really? Oh, maybe it is brood. You know what? Brood. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Why does it? Why is he? What does the word brood mean there?
2: Well,
0: I just see like, yeah, this basket of negative
2: things. Okay. So. My mom always now I know what this means. And always tells me not to brood over things. Yeah. Yeah. She's right. (laughs)
0: And I never had to say what she was talking about <laughs> until now. Okay, good. Um, we've made progress. Um, beginning of paradise lost, thou dove-like, sets brooding, or the vast, and chiefly thou, um, O spirit, um, that before all temples dost prefer the upright, heart and pure. Thou knowest, thou from the first wast present, and dove like sat brooding o'er the vast abyss and made it pregnant. So that's the invocation of a One of Paradise Lost. What is the spirit doing, dove like, so it's the Holy Spirit, sat brooding o'er the vast abyss and made it pregnant? What does that mean? it's
2: like a snake.
0: Yeah, but. That,
2: that and the pre- made it pregnant is like. Exceeded some idea or some ideology into something.
0: Yeah, so there's certainly something there that the Holy Spirit made the abyss pregnant and by making it pregnant created the universe perhaps. It's the very opening of Genesis and the Spirit of God moved on the waters. Um, That's um, in the beginning God created heaven and earth and the earth was without form and void and the spirit of God actually what is it is moved on the abyss um, so that spirit is the Holy Spirit um, dove-like because it's not only snakes that brood but also birds, birds. good um, and so when birds brood what are they doing?
2: on oh, the roost yeah is it sound like a roost? Like
1: when they fly
0: back home after a long day? Yeah. No, roost is they stand on a branch. Oh. Brood is they do something else. Close. When they sit on the eggs, So it's mainly female birds that sit on eggs to keep them warm. Penguins, famous, male penguins famously do it. But gener- But Milton didn't know that. Generally, it's the females of the birds that lay and then sit on eggs, and when the eggs hatch, they're known as the brood, but the action of sitting on the eggs is called brooding. So there is something really interesting about which Milton is getting from Kabbalah about the opening of Paradise Lost, which is that the spirit of God, the Dove, the, dove, the Holy Ghost, makes the abyss pregnant, which makes it male, but broods on the abyss, which makes it female. So, like all the other supernatural figures in Milton, the God himself is both male and female, as are the angels, as are presumably the fallen angels. God himself, which is the pronoun Milton would use, is hermaphroditic. And so, anyhow, that idea of brooding is the word is probably being picked up by wordsworth here thou over whom thy immortality broods like the day broods the way your mother tells you not to but somehow he's brooding on his own immortality but he's not it's his immortality that's brooding on him covering him up being something inescapable to this little child broods like a master or a slave broods like a presence which is not to be put by, so this child cannot get away from its own immortality. Thou to whom the grave is but a lonely bed without the sense or sight of day or the warm light, a place of thought where we in waiting lie so you guys might not have those lines
1: yeah yeah he
0: took those out later after um he added um in darkness lost the darkness of the grave but thou um to whom the grave is but a lonely bed without the sense of sight without the sense or sight of day or the warm light a place of thought where we in waiting lie that is we adults are waiting for you to come there. Thou little child, yet glorious in the might of untamed pleasures on thy being's height. So here you are, close to the very height of human being. And then this question, given how close you are to God, why are you insisting on going the other direction? Why? With such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke. It's inevitable. You'll be yoked. You will be imprisoned. You will be bound by the years no matter what. Why are you rushing into it? Play acting. A wedding or a festival. A mourning or a funeral. Doing these fragments of your dream of human life. It's going to come. Why? Why? With such earnest pains dost thou provoke the years to bring the inevitable yoke thus blindly with thy blessedness at strife. So the eye is now what? Blindly at strife with its own blessedness. Somehow this eye, which is the only eye that can see, thou eye among the blind, is acting blindly. Blindly is blindly in strife with its own blessedness. Full soon. We're in the blind ones, but if we could see,
1: we would be going the direction that the child is not.
0: Right. So what the child is, we're blind metaphorically. The child is blind figuratively, if not quite metaphorically. The child is an eye that is acting, and the only eye that can see, but it is acting blindly because it's not reading well Um, so it is blindly with its blessedness its strife
2: so it's like it's seeing things but it's not registering or categorizing or assigning meaning
0: yeah yeah
2: so it's not judging
0: yeah Good. Doesn't
1: that get back though to the whole innocence thing? Yes. In order to have that, there's necessarily some ignorance, some blindness.
0: Right, exactly. Exactly. And that's what he was describing in the first stanza. There was a time when Meadow Grove and Stream seemed apparelled in celestial light. So that's when he loved the earth. And here's this little child who loves the earth and loves everything about it. I love childhood, and I'm going to love adulthood, which is what most children think. So, why is it doing that? And then he says, warning, full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost. And deep, almost as life. So, pretty soon, you will be covered with frost, with a weight heavy as frost, and deep, almost as deep as life itself. And that's self-description. This is what's happened to him. Full soon, at best, you'll write a poem beginning, There Was a Time when meadow, grove, and stream to me did seem appareled in celestial light. So the child looked like he might be a kind of way out for Wordsworth. I look at the child and I realize when I see its wonderful energy, the truth of these intimations of immortality, but as I look at the child, what I see is the child is clueless. The child closest to God, who is our home, the child who is still trailing clouds of glory is the child who's still blessed is blindly at strife with its own blessedness. And then the strangest turn in the poem. If you understand what happens next, you'll understand everything. Oh joy, where does that come from? He's just said the grimmest imaginable thing. You look at, just try this as an experiment. (laughs) When you see a little kid looking happy and being doted on by adults around it, just say full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight (laughs) and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. And see how happy you make the adults around the child. Because you won't. And then say, oh joy. Yeah, so where does the joy come from? That is a really strange flip. He's just said one of the grimmest imaginable things about the fate of all human beings. It's not grim because something terrible happened to this one child. It's grim because this is what happens. To humans, Let's look... Oh, we don't have it with us. At the end of Frosted Midnight, um, Coleridge blesses... It's the same child, as I say, Hartley. His little child, Hartley, who's then just a few months old. And says, Coleridge says, I was brought up in the city, but you, you're going to have a much better childhood, much better life than I did because you're going to grow up as a child of nature. And um, you're going to grow up and nature will be be wonderful to you, and you will experience all of this and Wordsworth is not making the same prediction for Hartley that Coleridge did later on. Hartley, who became a minor poet he 's not a bad poet at all, and um, a writer and a and an essayist um, He was gay and not quite out about it because no one was, but was um, part of what made his life hard was being gay in a regime of heteronormativity. Um, But he also edited his father's work with footnotes. And in his footnote to Frost at Midnight, in that footnote to the blessing that we'll look at that Coleridge uh, makes of him when he was just a few months old, he, his footnote to that is, poets do seldom prove prophets. That's great. Yeah. So, Wordsworth was right, and Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge was not. So, but Wordsworth feels jo- Joy. So, where's that joy coming from? Someone read the next stanza. Why don't you read it? Um, actually, Tafara, why don't you read it? Oh, joy.
2: Oh, joy that has the embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. The thought of our past years in me doth breed, perpetual meditation, not indeed, for that which is most worthy to be blessed, delight and Of childhood, whether busy or at rest, with new-fledged hope, and still fluttering in his breast. Not for thee I raise. These. Oh, not for these.
0: So remember, not for this Um, in Tindern Abbey.
2: Not for these I raise, the song of thanks and praise, but for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things falling from us vanishings, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized, high instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised, but for those first affections, those shadowy recollections, which, be they what they may, are yet the fountain light of all our day are yet a master light of all our seeing. Uphold us, cherish and have power to make our noisy years see moments in the being of the eternal silence. Truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness nor man endeavor, nor man nor boy, nor all that is at enmity with joy,
0: can utterly abolish or destroy. Thank you. Yeah, so stop there. You're smiling. You like it?
2: I do like it. Yeah.
0: So, all right, so where is the joy coming from? It's a crucial turn. It's what, It's where the poem manages the pivot that it's been trying for so long and up to this point. O oh joy that in our embers is something that doth live. So whose embers?
1: Okay, uh, in our embers, in adults' embers. Yeah. And so it's it's a wonderful thing that adults are able to remember
0: the joy they experienced as children. Well, it, I think it's more than that because he's criticizing the child. So what he's saying is, why are you doing this, you moron, is basically what he's saying to the little child. You're going to have a terrible time really soon. Full soon thy soul shall have her earthly freight and (coughs) lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. And then he realizes that his despair or desolation over this fact means that he's remembering something still, that heavy almost as life, deep almost as life, is somewhere within him, there's the memory of what it is that the child is turned away from, that within him, he has a sense of what he's lost, The child is really busy trying to lose it as fast as possible. And what he's saying is, why are you trying to lose this amazing thing? You're going to lose it all and really fast, and that's terrible. And then he says, wait a second. I have a sense of what he's going to lose. So I didn't lose it all. So, oh joy that in our embers is something that doth live. There's still something there in the embers. Oh, joy that in our embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers, still remembers what the was. Nature so, remembers? Oh, what do you have? No, no, that's what I have, but what does it mean for nature to remember? So here it would be something like um, in the natural world to which I belong, um, in the idea of nature that I have. There's still a remembrance or a projection or some um, human nature within myself that I can still remember what even then was so fugitive. So even then it was rushing away, but even now it's not entirely gone.
2: So is it to say that, like, just uh, having, still having a memory of it, like, A souvenir is a fact to be joyous about.
0: Yeah. And the more, the sadder you are, the more you should be joyous over your own sadness. Mm -hmm. Because your sadness measures the sense of what you've lost. Yeah, it's not like, I feel like it's more like how sad you are. You you still can't remember it.
1: Because if you could remember it, then you'd be sure. Yeah, yep. you're really sad because you, you have a feeling that what you lost was great. And that feeling is a. Uh, the word says an A. Uh. Ancillary? No, it's. It, whatever. But it, it gives you. It affirms. That you, oh, an affirmation. It, Good. Yeah, it affirms that what you're missing was really great. Yeah.
0: So there's still an affirmation there, and um, the more you've lost, the more you have a sense of what you've lost, the more there's still a connection. So it's not that you're, it's not that um, you're still in touch with it, but that you're in touch with your distance from it. It's like at the end of Moby Dick, if you know this moment when Ahab sheds a tear. Starbucks is you know Starbucks is named after Starbuck, right? In Moby Dick. <laughs> now you learned something else. <laughs> um, I had no idea. Yep. So Starbucks is the first mate in Moby Dick, and the yeah we went to the original Starbucks in Portland, and they had a, all sorts of interesting info on it. Um, So, Starbuck begs Ahab not to go after the whale. And he reminds Ahab of of his childhood and of another possible way of being alive. And Ahab sheds a tear. And Ishmael, the narrator of Moby Dick, says that one tear was worth more than the entire Pacific. But then Ahab, you know, he sheds a tear, he's back, he remembers. But... What was so fugitive? Here he is, 58 years old, and he is still able in that one moment of evocative intensity that Starbuck offers him. He almost turns around. But then he doesn't. Spoiler, doesn't end that well. So... Oh, joy that in our embers and even in Ahab's embers is something that doth live, that nature yet remembers what was so fugitive. And then he's talking about himself, the thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benediction. So it's thought again, just as we saw in Tintern Abbey. It's not thoughtlessness, but it's thought. The thought of our past years in me doth breed perpetual benedictions and then amazing the clarity of self-analysis that Wordsworth has here is really astonishing perpetual benedictions so I'm blessing the past again the way the ancient mariner blesses the sea creatures and the way Wordsworth has blessed ye blessed creatures I have heard the call ye to each other make in stanza four but here he says the flood of our past years in me doth read perpetual benedictions not indeed for that which is most worthy to be blessed so I'm not blessing what's most blessed not delight and liberty so this would be like the songs of innocence I'm not blessing innocence not delight and liberty not the simple creed of childhood whether do you have busy? Mm-hmm. yeah originally it's fluttering whether fluttering or whether busy or at rest, with newborn hope forever in his breast. And fluttering there, yeah. Yeah. And it could be with new-fledged hope still fluttering in his breast. Not for these I raise the song of thanks and praise. So I'm blessing and praising and thanking God, not for all these things that you're supposed to praise God for, No, but instead for those obstinate questionings of sense and outward things. So that's what you're talking about, Tafari. Obstinate questionings of sense and outward things for amazing gerund for fallings from us, vanishings that's what I'm blessing reality for, for, for the things that, for questioning the world, for things falling away and vanishing, for the blank, there's that word blank again that we saw in the prelude, blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. So it's, I praise God because of the blank misgivings I have about the world because the world is not a place that I feel at home in. So see where where we've gone here. The first part of the poem is something like, I used to feel at home in the world and now I don't and that's terrible. Now he's saying, I don't feel at home in the world and that's good. So he's taking the same fact and interpreting it the opposite way. Blank misgivings of a creature moving about in worlds not realized. High instincts before which our mortal nature did tremble like a guilty thing surprised. There, There's an odd echo I don't think Helmy says this of Hamlet. Uh, maybe, no he doesn't I don't think. Um where the ghost of Hamlet's father um, starts and disappears like a guilty thing, says Marcellus at the beginning of Hamlet. So, like a guilty thing surprised. What do I do? What do I raise the songs of thanks and praise for? For those first affections, those shadowy recollections, which be they, what they may, are yet the fountain light of all our day, are yet a master light of all our seeing. Uphold us, cherish us, and make our noisy years. So here we are into silence again, See moments in the being of the eternal silence. Truths that wake to perish never. So now I feel how much I've lost, and that's a truth, that misgiving, makes this world seem nothing. Moments in the being of the eternal silence. Truths that wake to perish never, which neither listlessness, the way I was feeling at the start of this poem, nor mad endeavor, the way the child is having fun and skating across the image of a star, or maybe the young lamb's bounding to the Tabor sound, or maybe me saying, I feel, I feel it all, but neither listlessness, nor mad endeavor, nor man, nor boy, nor all, that is with enmity, with joy, can utterly abolish or destroy. So there's something wrong. There's a misgiving I feel about the world, and it fills me with joy to feel that misgiving. Nothing can utterly abolish or destroy it. So, hence, in a season of calm weather, Though inland far we be, our souls have sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, can in a moment travel thither and see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore. So that's what it's like to be me now is that I can still see the shore And the children sporting there like the little six-year-old or four-year-old and know what's behind that child. The child's just having fun on the beach and heading inland. Me, we, we can see from where we are, we can still hear those waters, see the sea. And so back to the birds singing. Then sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song. And let the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound. So remember, in the fiction of the poem, it's still the same day, where he says, I, I, um, now while the, this is a, a third stanza, line 19, now while the birds thus sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound as to the tabor sound, to me alone there came a thought of grief. Now it's, then sing ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song and let the young lambs bound as to the taper sound. We in thought will join your throng. That is the thought of grief now becomes joining them in thought which is what's important. What I thought was important was that the thought was of grief. What I see now is important is grief was a way of thinking we in thought will join your throng, Ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today, feel the gladness of the May. So remember, it's still the same May morning as um, line 44, while the earth herself is adorning this sweet May morning. I'm
1: really looking
0: at the this. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they are. No, no, no. It's, it, it's a, it is a really um, just as, as pure sound, um, pure poetic form. It's amazing. Okay, let's stop there. Um, read through book nine of the Prelude. Is that okay? Yeah. For Wednesday? <laughs> part of the nine hours of outside class work you're uh, supposed to do yeah. per class, as everyone knows. Um, and we will also finish The Prelude. I mean, we'll finish The uh, we'll Prelude next week, but we will finish um, The intimations Zone. we'll definitely look at um, book six of The Prelude and, um, on Wednesday. Yeah? Um, on the syllabus, is that something that we have to do a the memorization? Yeah.